0: You're listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. Join us as we have a fun conversation with certified experts and physicians about health topics for you and your family.
1: It's Your Best Life, our one purpose. All right. So today we are joined by Dr. Ryan Beardsley, who works out of Mercy One Waterloo OBGYN. How are you doing today, Dr. Beardsley?
0: Good. How are you doing?
1: Great. Thanks so much for um, joining us today. Um, I guess I kind of want to just start off. Can you just give a little bit of background for how you um, kind of became an OBGYN doctor and what drew you to this field in Mercy One?
0: Yeah. So, between my freshman and sophomore years of undergrad, was when I kind of had uh, decided that I wanted to be a physician, and so I started kind of focusing on pre med uh, direction. Not quite sure what I wanted to do altogether, but. I knew I really liked anatomy, working with my hands. And when I got into medical school, I was kind of picturing something surgical. Didn't really have OB-GYN on my radar a whole lot Um, at the beginning. I didn't know a whole lot about it. Uh, Even though my wife, by the time I had my OB-GYN rotation in medical school, we had just had our fourth child, but I'd only seen a small, (laughs) I'd only seen a small portion of all of the things that OB-GYNs do. And my wife had vaginal deliveries, not even C-sections. So I didn't even see some of those surgical aspects of things. But in medical school, um, I really liked the surgical rotations. And when I got around to my ob rotation and realized um, how broad it is and how many different things that they did, and also kind of thought about how much good it does when you have a young mom and with a newborn baby and how much of a difference you can make for them, as well as all the other patients that you see, um, I realized that if I was going to put those, my skills to use and, and put my heart into something, that that was something I could easily put my heart into and feel like I was doing a lot of good.
1: Nice. Oh, wonderful. Well, you kind of touched on one of the first things I wanted to talk about, That's such a broad range of things you can do and that OBGYN providers, the, serv- the care that they can provide, I think a lot of people may be just kind of default to pregnancy when they hear OBGYN or, you know, pap smears. It's one of, I feel like it's one of those two things. Um, Mm -hmm. So can you kind of talk about all like the different care services that you, that an OBGYN provider can offer?
0: Yeah. So when we say OBGYN, um, kind of the, when we, OB is referring to obstetrics. So that's kind of all prenatal care, the things I think people usually think of. So your prenatal visits, getting your ultrasounds, knowing if there's a high risk condition, um, what we need to do about it, what type of monitoring we should do or testing we should do to make sure the baby's safe during pregnancy, to make sure the mom is safe. If we need to deliver early, if we need to do C-section kind of gauging those things to make sure in the end, mom and baby are both safe as much as possible. So that's kind of the obstetric side of things. And then gynecology typically refers to kind of most of the other things. So it does include like post pap smears, things like that. Um, but also um, has a lot to do with pelvic pain, kind of um, evaluating for potential malignancies or cancers mm-hmm. of the female reproductive tract. Um, and uh, even into menopause, you know, there's still surgical things and, and medical management that we do for patients even after their reproductive years the, uh, um, you know, abnormal bleeding, whether it's before or after menopause and pain are some of the most common findings as well as for patients getting closer to menopause or or sometimes even before menopause, you know, pelvic organ prolapse, urinary incontinence are all kind of in the scope of the common things that we see and treat.
1: Yeah, that kind of um, leads right into it. So there are different health focuses during um, a woman's life stages, you know? So you have puberty, young adulthood, all those things. And then if a woman chooses to want to pursue pregnancy, then you have prenatal, pregnancy, labor, delivery, postpartum, and then kind of paramenopause and menopause as well. Those are three really major stages in life. Um, So just to kind of start it off, in puberty, young adulthood, what are some common reasons a woman would come in to see her OBGYN provider?
0: Yeah. So a lot of it. So sometimes women will have kind of irregular menstrual patterns, irregular periods. Maybe they're bleeding patterns really close together or just really heavy, prolonged periods, um, or they're not having periods very often at all. And they're wondering if that's normal. And Mm -hmm. um, sometimes that can put people at increased risks of problems later in life. And those are always um, uh, good things to get evaluated to see if there is more that we should be doing. Uh, STD or STI um, screening testing um, is also another thing that we commonly do and and provide treatments and education about that. When do we start doing pap smears? And how often should we do them? And what things can I do? Since pap smears are part of screening for cervical cancer, trying to honestly, the, the big goal is to try to prevent cervical cancer to treat it before it gets there, but to know if we think that somebody uh, needs additional treatments to prevent cervical cancer or catch it early if it develops. Those are all things that would start um kind of in that time frame, kind of soon after um uh women start having their periods and kind of early in their reproductive years. So Those kind yeah. of more common things that we uh identify.
1: Yeah, and um <laughs> I, I love, I'm just going to ask it cause I'm just curious. Can you kind of explain? So I know what a pap smear is and I know that it helps screen for cervical cancer, but I guess I don't really know what you guys look at. Is there, is it, can you just kind of tell me?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think lots of times this is something that um, I like to try to help educate about. And so uh, it's good to have a chance to talk about it briefly here because i'm often talking about it with patients often if they're in the emergency department they'll have maybe pain or worried about stds or abnormal bleeding and sometimes they'll get swabbed for some to screen for some stds and because they had a a speculum exam meaning an exam where they you know that kind of duckbill shaped instrument that we use to help look in the vagina and look at the cervix um, we use that for pap smears, but also for lots of other just parts of an exam. And I think lots of women uh, uh, misunderstand, and think that they had a pap smear at that time and it can throw off kind of, if uh, realizing when they need to have yeah. their actual pap smear. So pap smear is specifically for cervical cancer prediction. So basically to try to identify things that look like precursors to cervical cancer. So starting for most women, they would start at 21 years old and it's a swab Um, there's a little different types of brushes that we use but we swab on the cervix um, and we uh, take those the cells that are collected off of the cervix Um, a pathologist will look at it and see do these look like normal cells or is there something unusual about them do they look concerning and then sometimes we'd have to do a colposcopy where we actually have um, a colposcope. It's basically like a a lighted binocular microscope set, and we do some uh, typically some biopsies and put some solutions on the cervix at a follow-up visit then to make sure that uh, we don't see anything more concerning um, for cervical cancer Mm. and uh, uh, as a precursor for that. And so that's kind of the overall gist of it. These are all to to try to catch things that could become cervical cancer early and get rid of them early.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um,
0: I should add too that um, it's now recommended that as women get older, even now, um, you know, as it used to be thirty, but even now, as early as twenty-five, sometimes we'll do HPV testing, human papilloma virus testing. There's a lot of different strains of it. Some of the strains can cause things like warts or whatnot. Um, but lots of the strains, um, can predispose people to cervical cancer. They're one of the main risk factors along with smoking for cervical cancer development. And so we'll actually, um, those first few years, um, after someone turns 21, we usually don't screen for that. Um, mm-hmm. it's not recommended, but then we will start checking that later on to see if when any of those high-risk strains of HPV are present, because that also, might prompt us to do a colposcopy to evaluate further and make yes. sure we're not missing something that's a precursor to cervical cancer.
1: Oh, that's a really good call out. Thanks for saying that. And when, and um, just to cover our bases, you're supposed to um, get your pap smear yearly, annually, correct?
0: So it used to be annually. Um, there's an organization called ASCCP um, that as, as far back as 2012, they... Um, their guidance at that time had realized that you know lots of experts in the field got together and looked at all the data on it and realized you know we're just resulting in people having additional testing without improving people's outcomes and so um cervical cancer tends to be slow growing um and so they actually toned down kind of that routine testing so starting at 21 years old you'd get it every three years and then once you start yeah so every three years instead now of annually If there's an abnormality, we might do it more frequently, but for routine testing, if everything looks normal every time, it's every three years. And then once we start adding in that HPV testing with it, when you get a little bit older, then that gives us additional reassurance if that's all normal. Um, And so we can even move out to every five years. And that still um, does not really have uh, a negative effect, an adverse effect on risks of cervical cancer, as long as we're doing those things at those appropriate times.
1: Yes. Yes. Okay, great. That's awesome to know. Um, so I'm going to move into another life stage. So I feel again, like um, OBGYN is very known for pregnancy and labor and delivery. So I'm just going to kind of skip to the postpartum era. So, cause I feel like um, when a woman is pregnant and she's Current currently pregnant pre- during pregnancy, she goes and sees you, sees her OBGYN provider pretty often. Um, yeah, yeah. And correct. yeah, it's pretty frequent, right? And then yeah. postpartum, it's a, it drops off significantly. So I'm just kind of curious, you know, can you kind of talk about some of those um, when you, when somebody comes in postpartum, what are you guys touching on? Um, postpartum depression, incontinence, uterine pain. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, <clears throat> so it's very common because of hormonal changes and also environmental, you know, somebody just had a painful, either vaginal delivery or C-section with a recovery where they're having, you know, bleeding that can persist for, you know, commonly a few weeks out, even after delivery, they have a new baby, they have less sleep, they have more stresses Um, for lots of women. It puts a lot of strain financially because they're no longer working while they're recovering but then they have an extra mouth to feed and so forth so there's a lot of things both physiologically for a woman um, and as well environmentally kind of uh socioeconomic factors etc for a woman after they deliver and so one of the things we uh commonly ask about and want women to keep us updated on is depression so postpartum depression postpartum blues, there's some different categorizations, but the main idea is, um, you know, just uh, uh, in general kind of depressive symptoms afterwards that can become very severe um, for women. And sometimes even uh, enough where they can kind of have other uh, psychiatric conditions if they do have others, and those can become worsened too. Um, And often some medical treatment or therapy or both uh, can be very beneficial to help them through that time safely. Uh, and I, as I mentioned, the bleeding, we wanna make sure your bleeding's adequate. Uh, that's not too much um, bleeding. There's gonna be some um, and uh, you know, other things, if you're breastfeeding or even if you're not, any evidence of mastitis, things like that, any evidence of infection setting in after for those who had C-sections, we'll often kind of see them for an additional visit postpartum and even lots of women have things like gestational hypertension or preeclampsia, which, um, you know, there's lots of things we're trying to make better known like preeclampsia because that can actually flare up either have a recurrence of it postpartum or have an initial presentation of it. Those first few weeks postpartum for preeclampsia. And that's one of the more common causes of, um, mortality or, or maternal death in our country are effects either stroke or effects from seizures that can occur, um, from preeclampsia. So, you know, if we need to, sometimes we'll be checking women's blood pressure more frequently after they deliver or -hmm. things like that, that postpartum timeframe typically is considered to last up to about six weeks after delivery. Mm -hmm. And so usually we'll see people, um, oftentimes a couple visits before six weeks out, but then pretty much everybody will at least have that six week visit out and, uh, you know, you know we typically advise people not to have intercourse before that six week visit, mm-hmm. but also essentially to uh make sure that they've recovered in all the ways that we want or hope to see from the delivery from their uh, from having the baby and that yeah. they're kind of able to transition back to uh, other things that they need for life
1: is there are there like um um during that postpartum six weeks and then um period is or time period is there um like exercises or is it more just like about like just letting your body rest and heal or are there like, like pelvic floor exercises that people that you encourage people to do?
0: Yeah. I think people probably uh, different. Obigines probably have different guidelines for that first six weeks as a generality that time you're mostly trying to kind of rest and whatnot. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for those who had a vaginal delivery or even those who were in labor to some extent, but then had to have a C-section, you know, the cervix, the pelvic floor muscles and the perineum, kind of the the tissue kind of at the base uh, of the vagina. Um, you know, there is some sort of, there's some amount typically of bruising, muscle injury on those pelvic floor muscles and things. So, you know, kind of like if somebody had a, a, a sports injury on a muscle or a ligament or whatnot, you know, you probably don't want to jump right back into a lot of exercises right away, but that is going to be an important part of the rehabilitation after the initial injury and inflammation and things have recovered. So definitely by that six week postpartum visit, you know, that's a good time to be starting things like pelvic floor exercises. Kegels is an example that she said to help mm-hmm. strengthen those muscles back up and help them regain some of their, their tone and stability. Um, and, uh, as well as other activity, just, you know, to get back to kind of healthy exercise and whatnot in general. Right, and that can right. help decrease uh, uh, any long-term complications from the deliveries.
1: Oh, sweet. That's so, so interesting. Um, so interesting. Okay. So when to move on to kind of like the the other stage of life, I want to talk about paramenopause and menopause. So, you know, your body tr- getting ready to transition to menopause and then the transition of menopause. When well, I guess my first question is, do you see a lot of women come in and want to talk about that and like are like comfortable talking about that kind of topic?
0: You know, I wonder myself sometimes do. I mean, I, we do see um, a good number of women who come in talking about those things. Um, you know, I can tell lots of the times that it's uncomfortable for them though. And, uh, and so I'm grateful when they are willing to come in and talk about it. Because sometimes women will come in after they've mentioned suffering from a problem for, you know, sometimes 10 plus years and it just gets so bad where it's just debilitating to the rest of their life. And they finally, it's just kind of pushed them over that threshold where even though they don't want to talk about it, they, they come and address it. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes even for things like postmenopausal bleeding, somebody stopped having periods and a few years later, they start bleeding again. You know, those are things too, that, um, most of the time it's nothing serious, but sometimes that's an indication of a malignancy, like a uterine cancer or something like that. Um, and unfortunately once in a while, I always see somebody who's pushed it off so long that it's gotten worse than it needed to be before we could treat it. Um, so yeah, that is, I do wonder lots of the times myself, even how many women are suffering from things that we could help them with, um, either cause they don't realize that there's things that we can try to do to help them or because of, you know, embarrassment about coming in about it and things like that. So, you know, Mm -hmm. these are common things and um, hopefully kind of normalizing that these are Mm -hmm. things that commonly happen can help uh, people feel more comfortable coming in. And, um, you know, not everything in medicine has a treatment, but for lots of the things we can at least improve symptoms. And some things we do have treatments for completely, so.
1: Right. And in and some way, at least, you know, you can just talking to somebody and like voicing your concern, there's like almost an immediate relief of, well, at least I don't have to suffer alone anymore, you know?
0: Yeah. Or so. sometimes you know, we can reassure people. Sometimes people just want to know, is this normal? Is this not? Do I need to do something? Or is it just based on my symptoms? And we yeah. can help them gauge kind of where they're at on that spectrum of things.
1: Do you feel like people really understand what is happening to a woman's body during menopause? And I guess, can you kind of like talk through maybe what is happening? Um, yeah.
0: yeah. So um, I think lots of women have a pretty good idea, um, but uh, there are some misconceptions commonly that I hear people bring up. Um, so during um, women's reproductive years, during their menstrual cycles, um, there are some things that aren't related to periods that can cause bleeding, um, like vaginal bleeding, but uh, most commonly it's um the brain will start to send signals, hormones through the bloodstream that trigger the ovaries to try to make eggs to ovulate. Mm-hmm. So you're born with um X number of eggs, you know, millions of eggs in the ovaries. And whether or not you're ovulating those eggs slowly will kind of essentially die off um, over time, kind of gradually. So when you start ovulating, um, if you don't get pregnant soon after you ovulate, uh, then the hormones from the ovary will shut down for a minute, for a short time. You'll have a period when those hormone levels are low, the brain will then say, Oh, time to ovulate again, send more hormone signals down to the ovaries. Eventually those number of ov- those number of eggs in the ovaries run low and we're no longer getting, um, even though the brain is sending signals to the ovaries, Hey, time to ovulate again, there's just not enough response. And so sometimes as you kind of are left with some of those eggs that aren't going to be functional, you kind of, your periods can become abnormal. Um, your bleeding pattern can change from it previously was in that perimenopausal timeframe. And then eventually you'll stop having periods altogether. And usually we diagnose menopause at that point after you've had a year without periods then the, the hormones, estrogen and progesterone um, are coming from those ovaries themselves. And so once those, and from those eggs that are trying to form and they form little cysts that actually make them. And so um, when those levels of estrogen and progesterone drop off, that's when you get those symptoms like hot flashes, vaginal dryness. Sometimes um, women can suffer from uh, more frequent UTIs as a result of that. Um, Sometimes the best options are depending on how severe things are. Sometimes we can supplement people with low dose hormone therapy. Um, Typically, we try to avoid doing it indefinitely after menopause, but sometimes at least for, you know, five or so years after that can be beneficial. Sometimes we don't need to do that and we can just kind of manage with more conservative non-medical options for women. Um, But that's kind of, you run out of those eggs, the eggs are as they try to ovulate, that's what makes the hormones. And once you aren't getting more of those, that's why those menopausal symptoms set in.
1: Oh, I gotcha. I gotcha. And there is ways to manage the symptoms of menopause. I know, obviously, there's only so much you can do, right? I mean, your body's going to do what your body's going to do, but there are ways to help manage those symptoms.
0: Yeah, yeah, there are. And, uh, you know, there's always a there's always risks and benefits to anything done in medicine. You know, there's even doing nothing in some situations is not a no risk scenario either. There's going to be, um, things that can occur from that, but at least then we can help based on somebody's medical history and how bad their symptoms are, figure out something that hopefully can, um, improve kind of their, their quality of life. in yes. that setting.
1: Yeah. Um, so I'm going to kind of change topics cause this is something that's always I've always been like interested and I've never quite ever ever gotten the chance to really dive deep into it, but it comes from a time one of my coworkers in college doubled over in pain while we were at work and she ended up having to go to the emergency room because, and she had a cyst on her uterus and it burst. Um, And I don't even, I guess I'm just curious, like, I don't, how do these cysts form? Um, What are some, Symptoms of them, so that yeah, yeah.
0: Based on that that story, she probably had a cyst on her ovary. Would be my um,
1: yes.
0: And you can have some painful things like fibroids on the uterus and whatnot. But uh, when you're ovulating, you'll have a bunch of little eggs that are trying to compete to become what we would call the dominant follicle. So one of them, most of the time, will get big enough and kind of be the one that actually continues to grow and it will have the egg inside of this follicle, this cyst, and when you ovulate, which occurs about halfway between the first days of your periods, so kind of usually it's about two weeks after a period starts, um, that egg will ovulate, uh, meaning it'll that cyst will rupture and the egg will be released. Hopefully the fallopian tube catches it and kind of brings it into the uterus. Um, <clears throat> but that cyst, when it ruptures, when it opens up, For some women, that can be really painful, just that process of that um, cyst kind of opening up, depending on where it's out on the ovary or whatnot, how sensitive that ovary is. And sometimes, even during that process, you can get some bleeding. So, usually, it'll kind of close back up and you have kind of some of that cyst tissue. And that's what's actually making your estrogen and progesterone. Um, uh, But sometimes, if there's a little blood vessel that kind of gets opened up during the ovulation, you can actually have blood fill in it and you can get a hemorrhagic cyst. Sometimes those can get big and as they stretch, those can be very painful. Another thing that can happen is if you have cysts on the ovary, sometimes they can twist. So they're kind of lopsided and they're just kind of floating in this thin membrane, you know, this, these thin little sheets of tissue with blood vessels going to them, just kind of sitting in there between the uterus and the sidewall and the pelvis. So sometimes if they get a big cyst, it'll actually kind of be lopsided and twist over. And sometimes they can twist again or, you know, multiple times and it kinks those blood vessels that get it blood. And so kind of like a heart attack is pain because of decreased oxygen, decreased blood flow to part of the heart, ovarian torsion, you can have decreased blood flow to the ovary, which can be extremely painful too. And so, and that can be an emergency if you kink the blood flow too long. Sometimes that ovary can die off. So <clears throat> it can be difficult. Sometimes it's nothing. Sometimes you just have, um, I mean, not nothing, it's you know painful, but it's something that's not going to cause long-term problems. Sometimes it's just, mm-hmm. this is painful. It'll, it'll ease up and over time it'll shrink back down and the pain goes away. Nothing needs to be done. And sometimes the, we have, and sometimes it's a surgical emergency and we have to do surgery of some form or another, such mm-hmm. as for ovarian torsion or for extremely large cysts that continue to grow, um, to prevent it from causing a long-term issue for you.
1: Yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, yes. And
0: not, uh, um, sometimes during people's periods, if they have pain during their periods too, that can often be due to something like endometriosis, which
1: mm-hmm.
0: can form, um, cysts on the ovaries for a different reason. Um, And uh, so you can get kind of blood and tissue kind of built up um, outside of the uterus and form cysts on the ovaries or other places in the pelvis because of that, or just cause inflammation and pain anyway. And so there's a few different things that we try to make distinctions of. And sometimes those endometriosis cysts or fibroids on the uterus, sometimes the pain and bleeding from those are bad enough where we um, you know need to do surgery so that we can... Um, make it bearable for patients too. So
1: yeah, oh the different things that we we're
0: looking for when this goes on and, and the little details help. So those little apps that women have that track when their periods are like when they're bleeding and if they record down when the pain is occurring, that does actually help us out lots of the time. So
1: yeah, <laughs> see our period planners are worth it. <laughs> um, okay. So I'm going to kind of switch gears here. I don't think, I think that can be a lot of confusion between what the difference between an OBGYN and a midwife is. So can you kind of talk a little bit about what those differences are?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So first, um, so an OBGYN is a physician. So they went to medical school, they got an MD or a DO, and then they did specialized training for obstetrics and gynecology afterwards, residency training for OBGYN. That's four years of additional training after that. And sometimes people will go into subspecialties of it, like gynecologic oncology, kind of like cancer specialized, or reproductive and infertility specialization, like subspecialization. So you can do additional fellowships after, but yeah, the scope as an OB/GYN, ob in general, um, a physician with some additional um, specialty training, and then you could become board certified. You know, typically within those first few years after that residency training. Got it. Oh. So, um, a midwife, um, we sometimes have to clarify what we mean by that because <clears throat> there's a few different um, things that that are termed midwife. And midwife is a term that's been around, you know, long, long time. Um, and typically referring to somebody who uh, is, assists with pregnancy and delivery um, of patients. Now, the midwives out there probably are... Uh, um, I'm probably undereducated about all the specifics of that, that some of them know, but the, we're privileged at our clinic to work with a handful of midwives. And the midwives we work with are CNMs, so Certified Nurse Midwives. Yes. Meaning they got their RN, um, so they're registered nurses, uh, and then got additional advanced practice nurse training. So if you know anybody who's like an APN advanced practice nurse, so... Um, they, and there might be some minute kind of differences with that, but basically additional certification for midwifery and advanced practice, um, nursing, meaning they can prescribe medications. They do some procedures. So we have, uh, some midwives who are doing colposcopies, like I mentioned with pap smears. So some of them do the colposcopies in the clinic too. Um, with labor and delivery. You know, they do the deliveries of the babies. They do help with all the prenatal care, the postpartum care, um, and some of the typical um, obstetric lacerations. If there's any kind of, of the normal tears that can sometimes occur with pregnancy, you know they can help. They uh, are trained to repair those, um, to suture those. Now, they we collaborate with them often because um, traditionally, it's kind of Routine low-risk um, scenarios for pregnancy. Um, but rates of women with high-risk pregnancies are have in general been increasing over the years. So we often are collaborating with them to make sure for high-risk conditions that the routine care is being done on top of any additional care that's needed. Uh, they don't, the midwives don't do surgery. So if the patient needs a C-section or if they're seeing somebody outside of pregnancy. Who may need surgery, um, they'll often refer them to us for a consultation. You know, does this person need a hysterectomy, some other type of procedure or surgery or something like that, so that we could, or prolapse surgeries um, to figure out if that's needed and things too, and we can, uh, and then we would kind of take over for that portion of it.
1: Nice. But uh,
0: yeah, we work very closely with them and are uh, both trying to help make sure um, patients get all the the care that they want and that uh hopefully get it as best we can um, yeah. the way that they're hoping for lots of women have lots of hopes and expectations for pregnancy and as we can safely fulfill those we hope to
1: <laughs> yes absolutely 100% um so i guess i'm now kind of going back out general for you um most women sh- should and maybe not all do. And I don't know, just like not all, everybody goes to their family medicine provider, you know, like going to take care of women's health and an OBGYN or a midwife, you know, is kind of a part of your primary care for a woman, right?
0: Yeah. It's often considered, um, that way. And so oftentimes we're also seeing women for kind of their annual, well, woman exams and things like that. So obviously we, uh, um, respect the training that the internal medicine and family medicine physicians have had in lots of the chronic medical conditions. um, You know, we let them kind of manage those types of things and often they'll want us to kind of manage some of the uh, more female specific um, conditions. Obstetrics and gynecology in general is considered a um, surgical um, specialty. Um, But Lots of the, you know, as time goes on with medicine, we learn new medications, new treatments and things like that, where we can treat or manage patients' conditions adequately without having to perform surgery. Um, Or for those who do need or or would prefer surgery, often we can even do it in a more minimally invasive approach um, with quicker recoveries and things than we used to. Um, and so that's kind of what our specialty is. Um, and, but yeah, it does involve lots of times kind of helping with lots of that primary care and even, especially after pregnancy, there's lots of things that we identify during pregnancy. We're seeing patients often where, um, they're, they're getting more care from a physician than lots of these women have for much of their adult life. Um, and so we identify a lot of things that. Um, need to be addressed kind of moving forward even after pregnancy.
1: Yes. uh, I'm sorry. I I was just saying, I think uh, my friend, she went and saw her guy, her OBGYN provider 16 times during her pregnancy. Does that sound about right? 16 visits?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So kind of the average ends up being around um, 13 for people without any high risk conditions. And then uh, depending on if we need additional visits for things, yeah, it's often going to be a little bit more.
1: Oh, that's awesome. Okay, well, um, is there anything else that, you know, I didn't really ask or didn't cover that you kind of want to plug and talk about?
0: Um, You know, I think we covered most of the things. Um, And, uh, you know, I think one of the biggest things is just uh, um, helping people realize that there's a lot of conditions out there that... um, there are treatments for that we can help with or at least kind of make things more manageable. And, um, to recognize that sometimes, even if, you know, you don't want to do anything after we've had a discussion, at least knowing what things to address and and whatnot is most is, uh, uh, can make a big difference in the long run for certain conditions and can avoid kind of tragic outcomes for people in, in some circumstances. But at least, you know, one thing I always encourage patients to do is, um, you know, in medicine in general, we're obviously always looking for new treatments for things. But even during pregnancy, pregnancy, I really like that time frame because um, women are very motivated to um, take care of their baby. And most, most, most of that, um, for most situations, involves just healthy lifestyle habits, good diet, good exercise, um, you know, quitting smoking, you know, for people who smoke and things like that um, and avoiding, uh, you know, some other illicit drugs that people use. You know, if we can avoid those things and you can keep those habits after, um, you know, that's the best long-term strategy for, you know, 99% of medical conditions that people have to prevent bad outcomes. Um, but, uh, you know, I always enjoy trying to take advantage of that time frame to help patients. Uh, see what things they can um, change to help their life um, become more of what they want it to be all the way up till the end of their, till late stages in life, so.
1: Yeah, so true, so true. That's so true Dr. Beard, that's very true. You know, take care of yourself, take care of your body and your body will take care of you. Awesome, well, thank you for joining us today. Really yeah. appreciate it.
0: Thank you very much for giving us the chance to talk about our specialty a little bit.
1: Thanks for listening. Send us your feedback at mercyone.org backslash podcast. Your Best Life podcast can be found anywhere that podcasts are streamed.